You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Standard treatments for depression are effective in providing relief in most cases. However, some individuals suffer from depression that does not diminish despite adequate trials of antidepressants, psychotherapy, and even electroconvulsive therapy. There is new hope for those suffering from treatment-resistant depression in the form of deep brain stimulation, electrodes implanted in the brain that provide continuous current to a specific area of the brain has provided relief to subjects in groundbreaking new studies. Welcome, I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is Dr. Helen Mayberg, Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Mayberg studies over the past 20 years in neural network models of mood regulation in health and disease have led to the recent development of a new intervention for treatment-resistant patients using deep brain stimulation. Welcome, Dr. Mayberg. Good to be with you. Before we talk about your fascinating work, let's talk a bit about your background. It's unusual that you are a board-certified neurologist and a professor of psychiatry. What led you to combine the two specialties? Well, when I finished my neurology training many years ago at the Neurological Institute in New York, I always had an interest in the behavioral parts of neurology and had always intended to train more in behavioral neurology than in general neurology. And it was at that time that PET scanning was coming into the experimental arena, and I had the opportunity to do a postdoctoral training fellowship at Johns Hopkins to actually train in the use of PET scanning. And while at Hopkins and actually working in epilepsy, had the opportunity to meet Robert Robinson in the Department of Psychiatry, who at that time had just published some landmark work on post-stroke depression. And he and his team were systematically looking at depression and neurological disease. So being in the right place at the right time, new innovations in brain imaging, a group of patients and a group of investigators at Hopkins interested in the interface of neurology and psychiatry and particularly mood regulation led to a very fruitful collaboration And that was really the start of my behavioral neurology career in the study of the neurology of depression with imaging. And you began by studying depression as a comorbid condition, didn't you? Yes, we did. Our first papers were really on stroke depression and then Parkinson's disease associated with depression in Parkinson's patients, Huntington's disease patients, Alzheimer's disease patients. And what we're really interested in is how could we avoid what was already the clear confound of the heterogeneity of the pure psychiatric depressed patients and actually look for brain biomarkers, if you would, in a more controlled sample. And it was really at that time that we were really using neurological disease and the associated depression in those very specific neurological models to really define and to examine whether depression would leave an imprint on the brain in a way that we could map it with the available imaging technologies. And because there was such a strong signal, it was very obvious that we needed to move our studies into primary affective disorder, and that really became the start of my full-time work on depression with pure psychiatric patients. 
You did find that there were two areas of the brain that showed activity in people suffering from depression that was unique and that you were able to describe those who are depressed by. We certainly weren't the first. It had been described, you know, very early in the 80s by Lou Baxter at UCLA that different groups of depressed patients, whether they had unipolar, bipolar, or obsessive compulsion, OCD with depression, showed low activity in the frontal lobes. And it was asymmetric, but generally affected both sides of the brain. Our studies expanded on that and showed not only were the frontal lobes affected, but the anterior cingulate was affected and the anterior temporal lobes were affected. So there was already now sort of a set of regions that appeared to be working together that showed underactivity. But it wasn't until experiments progressed over time that it became clear that there were other regions that were almost sort of hidden in the baseline depressed state, and they only became apparent as we saw their activity change when we treated the brain. And that brought out the involvement of what became a very important brain region, the subcolossal cingulate or Brodmann area 25, that it's a deep structure, it's part of the cingulate gyrus, it's the ventral or most inferior part of the cingulate gyrus, and that its activity seems to be turned down when depressed patients get well. And we inferred that actually if it turned down its activity, its baseline activity was hanging a little higher than normal. But it was a little hard to see. But we also had a very critical experiment that really locked in the importance of Area 25 and its relationship to the frontal cortex. And that was when we actually provoked healthy people into a state of transient, intense sadness. So having people remember a personally sad life event. And we could map that in the PET scanner and actually literally watch the brain shift from a neutral mood to an intensely sad mood. And that also activated Area 25 and turned off the frontal cortex. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Helen Mayberg, professor of psychiatry and neurology at Emory University School of Medicine. And Dr. Mayberg, now perhaps we can talk about, so you've identified Area 25 as so important in depression. And then when you pose that question, you know, what are the changes when someone has undergone cognitive behavioral therapy or antidepressant? medication. When you were looking at that area 25, what did you find? Well, one of the really surprising things early on is because we had seen with placebo medication, turning down area 25 was also critical to the antidepressant response as part of placebo response. We sort of figured that, well, this must be the final common pathway because, well, gee, the thinking at the time was that, well, placebo was in some ways a poor man's therapy. You have people in the hospital, you're giving them positive reinforcement, they're taking a pill every day, but you do have the gestalt of the clinical milieu of the hospital setting where we're doing this study. And so we just naturally assumed that if non-response was associated with failure to turn down 25, if we did true cognitive behavioral therapy, we would probably confirm our hypothesis that this was the final common pathway for recovery. 
So we set up an experiment in Toronto with Sindel Siegel, who's a very preeminent cognitive behavioral therapist and investigator. And so we had a group of patients. They did extremely well treating their depression with CBT. And lo and behold, we didn't get a down regulation of very 25. And in fact, we didn't even get the up regulation of frontal cortex. We actually got a very unique pattern. So we were a little sort of disappointed because our hypothesis was wrong. But actually what we came to realize is that it was probably a bad hypothesis because therapy and drug actually are synergistic and not redundant. Every clinical trial has shown that both given together do better than either treatment alone. So thinking biologically wouldn't make a lot of sense that they would do identical things to the brain. And so we kind of reformulated our thinking on that and actually looked at the literature and realized that once you got out of cognitive therapy and you started to look at patients who were requiring medication or more somatic or aggressive treatments, that in the published studies on those additional treatments, Area 25 did need to turn down its activity. And it started to look, and there were certainly studies by people like Greg Siegel at Pittsburgh, and then subsequently a study that we did in Toronto that was published by Sid Kennedy from my group comparing venlafaxine and cognitive behavioral therapy. That with a larger sample, Area 25 was regulated with both treatments but in the opposite direction. And the frontal cortex was regulated by both treatments but in the opposite direction. And each treatment had a unique impact on the brain that the other didn't. So suddenly it wasn't as simple of a brain region turning up, a brain region turning down. It was really the choreography of a number of different brain regions where overall CBT seemed to evoke a top-down effect a number of different areas of prefrontal cortex were affected, many unique, not touched by drug. And that gave a secondary effect on limbic structures, including 25. Whereas drugs seem to have unique effects on subcortical regions, including the brainstem, all the areas that the basic pharmacologists had implicated, and it had secondary effects on cortex. So you really had what everyone had kind of postulated forever, top-down with talk therapy, bottom-up with drug therapy. And as you added on the layer of how did the brain change with RTMS, with vagus nerve stimulation, with ECT, it seemed as though the sicker and more chronic and more intractable patients were turning down the limbic. So trying to down-regulate Area 25 seemed to be a common pattern. So that really led us to think that, look, if you can't talk it into proper homeostasis, if you can't drug it or shock it, maybe what you need to do is modulate the network much more selectively. Because it's not that ECT doesn't affect the brain in a very general way. Generalized seizure clearly reboots the entire system. But the goal was to take advantage of the exquisite precision of this network that was being defined by these various imaging studies where the details were coming into sharper focus. And our hypothesis was that Area 25 seemed to be sitting at a hub, sort of an intersection between the brainstem, the limbic system, the basal ganglia, 
and the frontal cortex. So it was really as though it was a relay where when its activity was dysregulated, it really wreaked havoc on the whole rest of the system. And if it had a primary purpose to regulating mood and depression more generally, and it couldn't be regulated by these various other interventions, go there selectively. And that was really our hypothesis for DBS. Well, it's fascinating research, and I think the questions sound like they are endless. Thank you for the great conversation, Dr. Mayberg. It was good talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Helen Mayberg, Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Emory University School of Medicine. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library.